Welcome to Reveal Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. Ephesians chapter 4, if you would be so kind if you found that, if you would stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Let's read the first six verses, and we'll dive into where we left off last week. It reads like this in verse 1 of the fourth chapter of Ephesians. It says, I therefore... The prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all. And in you all. Father, this morning we have spent time fellowshipping together, singing together your praises, spending time with your children, laughing, Father, this morning and reflecting on our past life. But now I ask you to set all that aside. Turn all that off in our brain and let us focus wholly and completely upon you. For the most important thing that we'll do today is to listen to your word and be obedient. So as you speak to our hearts about your love this morning, you open our hearts that we may receive and that we may leave this place different. All of these things today, Father, I just ask that you do by setting me aside and making very little of me and very much of you. And we ask this in the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. For those who are visiting with us, we've been uh, in the book of Ephesians now since I came to this church a year and a half ago. And we've been looking through the, uh, the book, one line, one word, sometimes at a time, just trying to discover what God has to say to us. And, and the book of Ephesians was written to a church, the church at Ephesus, and by extension was written to us down through the ages. And the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians is all about the theology of the church, you remember, and about his love for us and what he did th- uh, for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And then starting in that fourth chapter, um, he starts off with, with telling us how to apply that in our life. And we've been looking at this worthy walk, this worthy walk. And, and you'll notice there, he gives us some words for that. In the second verse, he says, with all lowliness, which we come to understand as humbleness, that we had to be humble. It even tells us in the word, we come to him humbly to be saved. From there, he moved to this word gentleness, which, which we grew to understand meant meekness. In other words, we were meek about those things that came at us. But if, if you were to say something about our God or to go against our God, that meekness turned into this roaring lion at the power of Jesus Christ that indwelled us and so we had this meekness from there I moved to this long suffering this long suffering was patience and if I've learned anything being a pastor of a church in 16 months patience is a gift we all need we need it with each other we need it with the world around us and patience he tells us comes out of that meekness meekness comes out of that humility that we get now we move to this uh, section, this uh, word that he's using here, this love. He says, bearing with one another in love. We looked a few weeks ago at, the, at the, the love that so many of us are familiar with, and it's that eros love, that love that we come to understand was taking something from someone. It's that word that we more than likely would use this day and time as, as lust. It's not a word that's actually used in the Bible. The eros is not used in the Bible in the Greek, but it's actually used in, in its simplicity and its, its demonstration through what it says about lust in the Bible and how we are, are, are prone to lust after things to fulfill a need in us. And that's the, the first type of love we looked at with that eros love. From there, we move to uh, 
phileo love. That phileo love was that uh, brotherly love. We named the city of Philadelphia after that, that city of, of brotherly love. And, and it's, it sounds good to say that I, I'm no longer in this eros love because you would have to admit that most of us come to Christ out of eros love. There's a need in our life. There's a hurt. There's a pain. There's something that we need fixed. And we see the only way to fix that is through Jesus Christ. And we come wanting to take that from him to fix that need. And it's okay that you may start there. It's not okay that you may stay there. You should move from that at least to phileo love, which is a give and take love. It's that, that friendship type of love. I think many of you have that with each other, with your family, with your friends, with those that are so close to you. It's that give and take love. Yet, I tell you, just as it's not okay to stay in eros love, it's not okay to stay in phileo love either. Because that's not the love that God demonstrated to us. Last week, we started talking about the love God demonstrated to us. And that was that agape or agape love, as you may have heard it pronounced. That agape love, that's the love that's not the take love like eros. It's not the give and take like phileo, but it's all give. It's that love that's all give. And last week, we reached over to a particular chapter in John, John chapter 15. And we started looking at it, and from there moved over to the book of Exodus. So I'm just going to pick us up in Exodus 3, if you want to turn there with me. Talk very quickly there to get us back into the 15th chapter of John. And we're going to try to wrap up our look at this agape love this morning. So Exodus chapter 3, last week, if you were here with us, you remember we were talking about this experience. This experience that Moses had in the wilderness and in the third chapter of Exodus, and it's where he was walking through this wilderness, and he was headed where he was supposed to, taking the sheep to where they were supposed to go, to the backside of the Mount of God. And, and he was headed there, and suddenly within this desert, he saw this burning bush. And, you know, it may not be shocking that bushes catch on fire in the desert. It's hot. But what was shocking there for, for Moses, what, as, as he looked at the bush and he looked back, he realized that this bush was burning, but yet was not being consumed. And if you remember, he turned from the path with which he was headed, and he turned towards this bush to see what it was. And, and God spoke from that bush and said, Moses, Moses. Moses approached the bush, and God said, Stop. Take those sandals off of your feet, for the ground that you are walking on is this holy ground. And we talked about last week about how many times do we approach God and realizing that we've been invited into the presence, heard our name called, saying, Roger, Roger, stop. Take those things of the world off because this place that you are approaching is holy ground. If there's one thing we've lost in the faith, it's the holiness of God. We've come to know God as one who takes care of our needs, one that we come and worship on Sunday, one that, that does things in our life. But we forget, for, first and foremost, God is holy. There is none of the other attributes he has that don't come out of this holiness. Even his love for us proceeds out of his holiness. When Moses approached that bush, God said, take those sandals from your feet because you are approaching holy ground. And it was there that he communed with God. And God sent him from there. If you read further over down through uh, the verses leading into verse 11, he actually tells him, we're going to send you off. I'm going to send you off to Pharaoh. And I'm going to send you off to Pharaoh to give him a message. And in verse 11 of Exodus 3, Moses says this to God. He says, but Moses said to God, who am I 
that I should go to Pharaoh. You ever had that thought when God gave you someone to go talk to? When God laid on your heart that there's a person that needs to know about this Jesus in your life, and you look God straight at and said, who am I to tell this person about Jesus? If you're honest with yourself, you've all been there. That's why you haven't shared the gospel with them. You didn't share the gospel because you didn't think you were worthy. I have good news for you. Moses didn't think he was worthy. It says, who am I? He says, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. God tells him in the next verse, Moses, you know, you're right. Who are you? <laughs> he says in verse 12, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So this mountain that he was headed to the backside of with the cattle with the sheep and he stops and he sees the burning bush and God talks to him through the burning bush God gives him a, a duty an action something to go do out of being in this holiness and he says you're going to go speak to Pharaoh and and Moses right in the face of God says who am I why are you asking me this I'm not capable God says you know Moses I agree with you you are not capable but I am and he says and I will go with you and it's proof that I have been with you when the people are released you will come back to this place and worship me I find it interesting that it's mentioned over in the New Testament when Jesus meets the woman at the well and talks to her about worship. And she says, my people worship on this mountain. You ever wonder where that mountain's at? You're reading about it in the book of Exodus. It's tied completely through all of history from end to end, what God has done. They even remembered in the New Testament a woman at the well that Jesus approached that had had many husbands that was living a life of sin even knew that God was God because he had done what he said with Moses and they had worshipped in that mountain. Is that not amazing? Here stands this guy that says, I'm not capable. God says, I am. In verse 13, he says, Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and, this, and they say to me, What is his name? Who shall I say or what shall I say to them? Have you ever been asked when you're sharing the gospel with someone, Who is the name of this God? Who is this God? that you so worship. Aren't there many gods? Haven't you heard that? There are many ways. Let's be all-inclusive. Let's get everybody in a big bundle because everybody gets to heaven. You, there's multiple ways. No God answers that for us right here. He says, when you go and even tell my people, much less the world around you, and they, they ask, who sent you? Who is saying this? In verse 14, it says, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. Those are awful big words. <laughs> Those are awful big words. He says to him, I, I am who I am. He says, if you want to be able to tell them who it is that sent you, look them in the eye and, says, and say, I am sent you. What does I am really say about God? You know, this, this speaks of God's self-existence. There was no one before God. There will be no one after God. There is no one who made God. There is no one who appointed God to the position he is. God just is. Talk about holiness. Think about everything that you do day in and day out, the very air that you breathe, the things that you touch, all that you have in your life, and think all of those things came from one person, the I am. <laughs> You know, it also speaks of God's eternality. He was here before anything ever existed. He spoke it into existence, and he promises to be with us through all of eternity future. So from eternity past, through eternity now, through eternity future, God has always been the I Am. 
He is the same God who created everything. He is the same God who was with those great men of the past like Moses that are spoke about in the New Testament and we still today talk about when we speak of God and His faithfulness to us. See, there's an entire chapter in the Bible that proves to us that God is faithful because it lists the men that He was faithful with and did the things that He said He would do and accomplished the things He said He would accomplish because both He was faithful and they were faithful. See, the great I Am is the one true God. There is no other God. There is no other God like Him. There will never be another God like Him. For anyone to say that He doesn't exist is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. And we all know the Bible says there's only one sin you can never be forgiven of. And it's to say that He is not God. It's to blaspheme that Holy Spirit. It's to deny His presence. Yet when you look in this world around us today, it's become a fad. It's become a a game. It's become... Uh, something everyone is trying to do to come up with a new way to say God is not God. The Bible says He is God. When asked a name, there was no other name that could be given than I Am. I Am. Can you imagine what it is to be in the presence of a holy God? Can you imagine what it is to walk up to that burning bush to be told to remove the sandals from your feet for you're standing on this place that is holy because of God's presence, because of this great I am. Can you imagine what it would be like to stand in His presence? Can you comprehend why a holy God would even want a fellowship with us? See, when I see the story, I don't see God as being (laughs) over-holy. I see me as being under holy. Why would a God that great want to be in my presence? See, Jesus in his opening statement there in John 15, if you'll flip over there with me, John 15, sets what he's about to tell us about this love with these words. He says, I am. I am the true vine, he says there. He sets forth into our thought, into our process, that story from Exodus when, when God said, I am is who you tell him sent you. Jesus here in the 15th chapter of John starts off this, this story about this, this vine, this, uh, this vine dresser, about the branches. He sets his parable in place by saying, I am the true vine. See, today we are in the presence of the most holy God. We're in the presence of the most holy God through the I am of the vine, through the one who did what he did because of his love for us. See, we're standing on holy ground. Yet God says, or Jesus says, I am the true vine. But then he says, after that, in the first verse, my father is the vine dresser. Even though Jesus is saying to us, I am God, I am the I am, he was still subject to the father. So he says, I am the vine, but my father is is greater than I. He is holier. He is is the Godhead. He, He is the vine dresser. And he starts off and he says, I'm the vine, he is the vine dresser. And he says that in verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And he starts setting up now this relationship of him to us, the relationship of God to us through him, and then what God is going to do with those that are either in a relationship or not in a relationship with him. 
He says, I'm the vine that you must be attached to. God's the vine dresser. If you're not attached, he says, and you're not bearing fruit as proof that you're not attached, you're going to be pruned. He says, in every branch that bears fruit, he's going to prune. Every branch that doesn't, he's going to take away. So if you're not attached, if you're not being fruitful, you're going to be cut off. If you are being fruitful, you're going to be pruned so that you would give more fruit. He goes on to say in verse 2. Then he moves down into verse 3 and he says, Even though you're going to be pruned so that you'll bear more fruit, he says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. I find it odd. I stopped when I read that. Does that verse seem out of place in there to you? Or is it just me? Just... I guess it's just me, but I'm going to tell you why that fell out of place for just me. As I read that, I saw he's talking about this vine and this vine dressing, and all of a sudden he stops in the middle and he goes, but you're already clean because of this word. Does that bring back a remembrance of anywhere else in Scripture that he talked about this cleanness and the word? Reminds me of John 13. John 13, which is back just a couple of pages. In the sixth verse of John 13, this is as he's in the upper room with the disciples. He's about to announce the fact that he's leaving. He's about to announce the fact that he's no longer going to be with them. And, and in verse 6, he's going around the table in the verses right ahead. And if you remember, he had taken off his cloak. He had girded himself with a towel. He had picked up a basin. And he had gone to each of the disciples' feet. And he had washed their feet, washed the dirt off, which remarkably sounds a lot like removing sandals out of Exodus now, doesn't it? Here they were in the presence of a holy God with dirty feet, and he washed their feet to symbolize the removing of the world, those things that were on them, just as the removing of the sandals represented setting aside the world because they needed to be clean in the presence of God. And he washed those feet, and, and he came in verse, uh, verse number 6, it says, And he came to Simon Peter. Remember Simon Peter with the foot-shaped mouth that always sticks his foot in his mouth. And, and when he got to Peter, Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Remember, we've talked about this before. They each had the opportunity to do which was the custom of the day and be the host and wash the feet, yet none had. Jesus had taken that lowly position of a servant and washed their feet. And when he gets to Peter, Peter said, Whoa, hold on a second. You're not washing my feet. Yet in verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, you don't understand now. But you will know after this. Peter looked at him in verse 8 and said, you shall never wash my feet. He recognized, he was convicted of that sin in his life, that he should have been the one washing the feet, not the one being washed. And he says, you will never wash my feet. But Jesus looked at him and answered in verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no part of me. No part. Simon Peter looked at him then in verse 9 and said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Wash all of me. And Jesus then, this ties back into what we were just looking at. It says, and Jesus said, said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not clean. What did he mean? You are already clean. You only need to be washed. See, Peter stands in the exact same position that we stand in as children of God. To be forgiven of sin is, yes, a complete forgiveness of all sin, past, present, and future. But the problem being is we continue to sin after we have asked for forgiveness and become one of his children. 
And Jesus here says, even though you've been completely washed by the blood that flowed from the cross, there are going to be days that there's going to be sin in your life. Those days you come to me and I will wash you clean. And what he's saying to those disciples is, even though you're definitely one of mine, beyond a shadow of a doubt I have chosen you, you still need this relationship with me, this relationship of love where I continually wash you clean. And the same thing goes for John 15. When he said there, you are already clean. Why? Because you have been washed completely by the blood of Jesus. That tells us he's talking to the saved. He's talking to us. He says, you've been washed by the word which I have spoken to you. So he says, if you've been washed by the word, verse 4, then abide in me because I will abide in you. If you ever stop to think that everywhere you go, everything you say, everything you do, you're doing in the presence of Jesus. If you ever stop to think that once you're His, He indwells you. The very thoughts you had this morning on the way to church that you were trying to set out of your head because you were coming to church, you were thinking in the presence of Jesus. The action you did yesterday that you think no one knows about, you did in the presence of Jesus. This morning you're worshiping in the presence of Jesus, yes, because you're here, but more importantly because He abides in you. Because you abide in Him. He says, As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. He's telling us as His children, unless we have that fellowship, that closeness, that love, that abiding in Him, even our Christian life will be fruitless. He moves on to verse 5, says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, I in Him, bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. What is evidence of you abiding in Christ? Fruit. We like to say we're not a judge. We, don't, we can't judge what people do. No, but apparently we can be a fruit inspector. If your tree is barren, so it's your spiritual life. If the fruit does not hang on the tree, then the vine is withering and drying up within you, that abiding he goes on in verse 6, says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. That's symbolic words for there is a place called hell. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're not attached to that vine, there will be the day that you will be gathered up with all the others who are lost and cast into eternal damnation in a place called hell. Where there is gnashing of teeth, there is misery forever. It's not going to be a party. You're not going to be hanging out with your friends. You're going to be totally separated from God and everything that you thought would fulfill your life, and you're going to be in eternal torment. That's the option. If you choose not to be in Christ and bear fruit, your option is to be burnt. He makes it pretty clear to me there is no middle ground. You can't get there by what you do. You can't get there by who your parents were. You can't get there by membership in a church. You can get there one way, abiding in Christ. How do you abide in Christ? Accepting the free gift of his death upon a cross for your sins. He goes on in verse 7 to say, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. What is this gift to us for the close abiding in him? Is that our mind becomes like his mind, so therefore the things we ask of the Father are the things that Jesus would ask of the Father, so therefore those things are granted. You ever wonder why your prayer life seems to always be on the losing end? It's because you're not abiding in the vine. If you're not fully in love with Jesus, 
If you're not fully attached to the nourishment that comes through the vine of Jesus into the branches which are us, your prayer life is dry. He says in verse 8, but by this my Father is glorified. How? That you bear much fruit. So you will be my disciples. You want to glorify a God that hung his son upon a cross for you? How do you do that? You bear much fruit. How do you bear much fruit? You stay connected to the vine that is the life of Jesus that abides in you. By being connected, you have your prayers answered because your prayers are the prayers that Jesus would pray. And as life flows into you and there is much fruit hanging from your tree, and when the world sees the fruit, the Father is glorified. He goes on in verse 9. He says one of the most baffling things that I have ever heard said in Scripture. He says, As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. I have a question. How much does God love Jesus? How much does the Father love the Son? They are one. Is there any greater love you can think of than Father God for Jesus the Son? Is there any greater love that you could imagine than this love? You see, because he has been with him throughout all of eternity. When he spoke that word to create the earth, I'm reminded of the very first chapter of John when it says Jesus is the word. When God spoke the word into existence, he was speaking Jesus. See, he has been with him through all eternity. He's had fellowship with him from before time even began. We desire to go to a place called heaven, to sit at the feet of our Father, to gather around the table to eat. Jesus has been there for all eternity. God has loved him before time ever existed. God knows the heart of his Son And he knows it so well that he used that heart to glorify himself through his death on a cross. Is there any greater love that you can imagine than the love that God has for Jesus? He says, as the Father loved me. He's saying, as my Father loves me. I don't even know how to put that into words. But that's agapeo. That's the agape love. That's the all about giving love where he loves his son so much. But here's what's amazing. He says, as the father loved me, I also have loved you. Have you ever thought that the love that God has for Jesus is the same love Jesus has for you? I asked you if you could think of any greater love than the father's love for his son. Guess what? That's the exact same love he has for you. It's a perfect love. It's a love that's not compromised by sin. It's a love that is true and not set on false pretenses. There's not anything about this love God has for you that has any kind of what can you give me back involved. Because when I look at the exchange that happened at the cross, I think Jesus lost. Because what was the exchange at the cross? I showed up 
in all of my sin, and he hung there in all of his righteousness and holiness. And I took from that cross the righteousness of Christ and placed it on me and gave him the sin. If I had to guess, he got the short end of the stick. See, when I went to the cross, it was all about what I could get for Christ. It was all about what he could give. You see, when you think of the love of God, you have to look at it through the relationship that he has with his son, Jesus. Why in the world would he love us so much in such a way? It's incomprehensible to me to even think that God would desire to have that kind of relationship with me. See, because we don't deserve that love. It tells us in the Bible that we all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not one of us that stand on any other level playing field than the playing field that we all are sinners. There's not one that's born better or worse. There's not one that's done more or less. There's not one that's, that's more deserving and less deserving. We're all standing at the foot of the cross on the most level ground that there's ever been. And that level ground is the playing field of sin. We first must come to recognize within our hearts that we are sinners. If we can't come to the cross saying, I'm a sinner and you are not, I'm in need and you're not in need of anything. If we can't approach the cross realizing that we are the ones that are wrong, we shouldn't approach it all. See, we approach the cross in humility, in meekness. Hopefully God's having patience on us and we're looking for that all-consuming agape love from Him. You see, Jesus loved us with the same agape love that the Father loved Him with. Jesus agapeoed us the day He chose us. He agapeoed, agapeoed us looking for absolutely nothing in return. We come to the cross with nothing to give and leave having gained everything. What an awesome exchange. You see, this flies in the face of absolutely everything we've ever been taught. You think about what you've been taught about who you are, the importance of who you are, and to better yourself. You see, if we love God, we'll work for Him is what we've been taught. If we love God, we will love others as what we've been taught if we love God we'll give to the poor that's what we've been taught if we love God we'll even share the gospel that's what we've been taught if we love God we're going to show it that's what we've been taught but what does Jesus say love is it's abiding love is abiding those things that we've been taught to show God our love should be the fruit it's not the vine. The vine is Jesus. The love that flows out of the vine is what gives the branch, us, life. And it's through that life that the fruit appears. See, Jesus commands us to abide. The word abide, if you think about it in its simplicity, really means to stay or to continue in. When's the last time you've set and continued in the love of God? When's the last time that the greatest desire of your heart was to fellowship with God through this agape love? When's the last time that all you wanted to do was be in His presence, in the holy place, and feel the love of the Father? 
See, Jesus says that we are to abide. Jesus tells us if we understand what a great love has been shown to us, we will desire to stay in, abide in, continue in that love. Church, never forget, never forget what great a love God has shown through His Son, Jesus Christ. See, when we really know what it means to love, to be loved by God, we'll be all consumed by this love and desire to remain in it. It's not about what we do to stay in this love. It's about what God did to show us His love. It's not about what we can do in return. It's about what God did. God gave His only begotten Son that we may know His love. The greatest gift that's ever been given is the death of Jesus upon a cross because it's through that death that we were agapehud, we were loved beyond all countenance. If we really understood that love, we would abide. If we really knew that love in our lives, we'll continue to live in that love. If we have felt the love of a holy God in our lives, there's absolutely nothing else that would be important. It wouldn't be our job. It wouldn't be our friendships. It wouldn't even be our marriage or our children or our families. Because all of those things would be strengthened out of the abiding love in Christ. See, without the abiding love in Christ, none of those relationships will ever be right. Ever. See, the things the world have to offer us are absolutely meaningless in the face of a holy God and His love for us. Our wants and desires will no longer be about ourselves. It'll be all about God and who He is. All that we want or desire will be God and to know His love. I mentioned that verse in John 3. I'm sure you have no problem at all quoting John 3.16. Our problem is we never quote John 3.17 with it. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The work of John 3.16 is God. For it says, for God. Not for Roger came looking for God. Not for Roger decided he needed his life fixed. It says, for God decided. And God so decided that he would love me, the world, by giving his only begotten son. The one and only son he gave. He hugged us through that love. And he says that whosoever would come to believe would have their heart so stirred by the Holy Spirit that they recognize a sin in their life and there was only one way out of that sin and that was through this Son, Jesus Christ. Whoever would believe in that. Believe that He crawled upon a cross and died for your sin. Believe that He was buried in a tomb and rose three days later that you would have eternal life. If you would come to believe that what Jesus did is enough, what would He do? He says, you'll not perish. If you believe that what God did through His Son, Jesus Christ, is enough, you will not perish. You will not be cut from the vine, bundled together, and thrown into the fire. But you will live. He says you will have everlasting life. But then he says in 17, here's why he did it. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. He did not come to flood the world again. He did not come to set the world on fire. He did not come to wipe humanity off the face of the earth. It says He didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might 
be saved. You see, the greatest of all gifts to show the agapeo of God is Jesus. I find it interesting. There's a verse that has been stuck in my mind. I think it's relevant here. 1 John 3. Remarkably enough, verse 16. 1 John 3, 16, and we'll close with this. By, it says this, By this we know love. How do we know love? Because He, capital H, Jesus, laid down His life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Jesus is the vine. We're the branch. It's through the vine that flows the love of God, the agape, into the branch. From the branch hangs the fruit. Summed up pretty well when it says, We know love because Christ laid down his life. We are to lay down our lives abiding Christ. Why? So that through our abiding, others' needs are met. Others see Jesus. Others come to know the Savior. We're quickly heading to the point in the fourth chapter that Paul's really trying to make. And it's the next set of words when he starts talking about unity. You want to know how to be unified in the love of Christ? We all abide in the same vine. For there is only one vine. We may each be individual branches in that vine, but all that is in us comes through the life of that vine. And it is this agapeo love. See, it's not about what we can take. It's not even about what we can give and take, for God needs nothing of us. It's about what God gives. How have you used what God's given you? How has the death of Christ made a difference in your life? It's not enough to believe that he hung there. It's not enough to believe that he was placed in a tomb. It's not even enough to believe that the tomb was found empty. Do you believe all that was done for you? Do you believe you would have done it if it had only been you? You see, because to abide is to be in love with Christ. Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.